Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning and welcome again to Christ Church. It's good to see that you all braved the cold and made your way in this morning. Um, also, if you find yourself uncomfortable during the service, we've got some nice soft cushion couches. You can just come have a seat back here. You'll still be able to hear. Um, no, it's good to be together today, and um, I'm looking forward to seeing what, uh, seeing what God continues to do during our time. And I want to begin by telling a brief story about two people who lived a couple hundred years ago, Thomas Charles and Mary Jones. Uh, the setting of the story is in the northern mountains of Wales in uh, late 1800s. We're about to cross over in the 1900s. And this man, Thomas Charles, lived up there. And he was uh, one of these, like, does a lot of different things guys. But uh, among his uh, jobs and items on his list of things to do were he pastored a number of village churches uh, in the mountains in those areas. And so he would go and preach and teach and, and uh, take care of people. And he also would print Bibles and make them available to the community so they could have them. And he developed a reputation for being a kind of a go-to guy for some of these things. And uh, one day he was in his house doing, doing his work, going about his business, and he had a knock on the door. And he opened up the door. And there was, uh, there was a fairly young woman standing there, probably in her, or in her teenage years. Uh, she looked uh, pretty worn and torn, no shoes on, invited her in, said, said who are you? And what's, what's going on? What's wrong? And she explained that her name was Mary Jones, and nothing was particularly wrong, uh, but she had uh, traveled 26 miles through the mountains of Wales with no shoes on. And he said, why? And she said, well, I've been saving up my money for six months, and excuse me, six years, and I think I have enough now to buy a Bible. And somebody told me that I could maybe buy one from you. That was the one reason, the only reason why she traveled 26, first of all, saved up her money for six years, traveled 26 miles with no shoes on, just so that she could get her own copy of this book. And I remember when I first heard that story, I thought, well, why would a person do that? Like, why in the world would you go through that level of pain and hardship and hard work just in order to get a book that most of us kind of take for granted on a regular basis? And the answer is simple. She thought it was worth it. She thought the Bible was, was worth all that effort in order to get one in her hands. And I have to admit, I think she was right. I love this book. I, it's a book I've grown up with. I remember growing up seeing it uh, you know, on a bookshelf or on, on maybe a living room table, seeing it in the hands of my pastor, my mother, eventually myself. I, I love this book. And somebody could argue that, you know, you probably only love it because you grew up with it, which I think is kind of a weird argument. The way I see it, I've had a lot of time to learn to hate this book. <laughs> but uh, so far, it hasn't happened yet for me. Along with all Christians throughout the centuries, I, I don't love this book just because I've seen it, but because I believe that in this book, God has spoken and that through this book, God still speaks to our world, to us to me. And therefore, I believe and we believe that this book is the sole or at least the primary guide for what we believe and how we navigate life in this world. That's what I believe about this book. However, not everyone agrees. Not everybody sees this book the way I do, the way many of you probably do. Recently, I was reading an interview with a former pastor, former Christian pastor. He was asked by Oprah how Christians should engage various issues in our world today, given the ways in which our world is changing. I want to show you just a line from his response to this. Here's one of the things he said. He said, quote, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant 
when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. That's a former pastor. He's hardly alone in this. Perhaps uh, some of you in this room feel this way. Perhaps probably all of us have at certain points in our lives felt this way. Certainly we all have friends who would energetically agree that if you keep quoting a book at me that's 2,000 plus years old, I'm going to keep thinking that you're irrelevant to what I'm trying to do in my life. And that's why over the next month or so, over the next four weeks, we're going to be tackling some pretty heavy issues in this series, I Have a Friend Who. And we're going to be talking about some of the various reasons people we love keep Jesus at a distance, aren't really that interested in him, or aren't willing to hand their lives over to God, aren't willing to trust in him. And if we're being honest, these are also some things that we ourselves sometimes wrestle with, sometimes struggle with, uh, sometimes find to be challenging. So this series will be challenging, but we also think it will be beneficial to us as we talk through some pretty important issues. And today we're starting right at the heart. Is the Bible relevant? Is, is this book that we either hold in our hands or look at on our phones or listen to in our cars or whatever, is this book relevant? Has it become disconnected from the realities of life in the 21st century? Is it just kind of outdated to some degree? Well, Ian, isn't it to blame for some of the hatred and bigotry and oppression that we see all around us? Those are the questions that I want to try to approach today if we can. And there's a lot of different ways we could approach them. I thought about kind of making a, a head-on case, making an argument for why the Bible is in fact relevant. That was kind of my initial plan, and I was off and running for a while with this and having some fun thinking about various things, but then I realized it kind of hit me that most of the people I'd be talking to aren't in the room. Now, certainly some of us have problems with this book, but probably because we think it's weird and bothersome, not so much irrelevant. No doubt some of us do, but for the most part, they're not in the room, and And I don't really like talking to people who aren't in the room. So I want to talk to you. I want to empower you. I want to equip you with with what I can in our time together today so that you can go back to the people you know and love who are very different from one another, who have their own wrestlings and stories and struggles. I want to do what I can to equip you and to help you love your friends who disagree. And certainly any in the room who, who, who don't agree with my perspective are, are welcome to listen in as well. Matter of fact, also, for all of you across the spectrum, we want you to know that during this whole series, I'm gonna, we're going to put a, a phone number up on the screen. You are welcome to, and we would love for you to text in your questions about the things we're talking about during this series. You can text them to that number, and uh, we'll be collecting them. We'll be at the end of each uh, time together, so today and the rest of the weeks of this, uh, this thing we're doing, we're going to be gathering over here and going through some common questions that people ask, some questions that you guys ask. Uh, we probably can't handle all of them, but those we can't get to uh, on Sunday mornings, we're going to be putting on our app and on the website and different things. So we want to know what your questions are, and we want to try to talk through these things with you. It's going to be fun. Now, here's what I want to say today. In just one sentence, summarizing my main point, the thing I want you to take away from as we think about whether or not the scriptures are irrelevant today. Here's here's my main idea. The best proof of the Bible's relevance is a life that demonstrates the Bible's power. Well, let it sink in for a second. The best proof of the Bible's relevance is not necessarily like a knockdown argument that can't be argued against. No, the best proof of the Bible's relevance is a life that demonstrates the Bible's power. I'm not going to give you a perfect argument to, to hit people over the head with. One, I don't know if that would work, even if you had it all memorized. Two, if I came up here and gave you 10 reasons why the Bible's relevant, well, I mean, most of us would probably remember a couple of them. I probably wouldn't remember most of them by Thursday. So I don't know that that's a real benefit to us. There's a time for that. But instead, what I want to do is to give you a path. And I believe it is the divinely sanctioned path. 
for becoming the kind of person who is walking proof, who is living evidence that the Bible is not only relevant, but alive and well as it ever has been. The best defense is a living defense. That's what I think is true. The best proof that this book should be something we deal with is a church full of people who engage this book deeply enough to be changed by it. Now, I'm not just trying to avoid tough questions about science or history or whatever. I think the Bible uh, stands up to objections and questions and skepticisms, even my own. I wholeheartedly believe what we, uh, what we say we believe about the Bible at this church. I was looking the other day at our website, and uh, we have a belief statement about the scriptures at Christ Church. Maybe you haven't looked at it in a while. Here's what it says. We believe that both Old and New Testaments are the inspired word of God, without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of his will for the salvation of men, and the divine and final authority for all Christian faith and life. I think that's true. But I think if I, you know, quote that to my neighbors who think the Bible's irrelevant, it won't be very helpful in that conversation. I think if you quote this, maybe you put this in your memory and you quote this to somebody or you show it to them on the website, they're going to probably say to you, hey, hey, good for you. I think I'm going to go over here now. And that's if they're nice. I just don't see it being all that helpful. But if they see you getting help from the Bible for a problem that you're both dealing with, if they see you growing in love and stability and power and joy because of the fact that you regularly engage this book, that's a little harder to write off. That's a little harder to ignore. And truth be told, I think this is the way the Bible asks to be measured. It's not that history and science and those things have no place in the conversation. They're important. And I love talking through and dealing with those things. But when I look at the Bible, what it says is, here's how you should evaluate me by whether or not I change you. The Bible claims to have the power to turn us into certain kind of people. Let me show you some places where this is true. Open up your Bibles if you, uh, if you have them to uh, Psalm 1, book of Psalms, longest book in the Bible. I want to look at the very first one. And it was placed at the front of this to kind of serve as a heading over all the rest of it. So Psalm chapter 1, uh, here is, here's what we read there. I wanna, it's not long, so I'm going to read the whole thing. First word is blessed or blessed. And that's actually not the normal word for blessed. This one maybe should be translated happy. If you were using this in normal you know, Hebrew conversation, it would be the word happy. Happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. So that's what happy people don't do. Here's what they do. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord. It's his instruction, his word. And who meditates on his law day and night. Now notice what the psalmist says about this person. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked, the psalmist says. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Simply put, this psalm lays out a couple of paths for us and says, if you go down this path, well, that won't be awesome. If you go down this path, you're going to end up being a person who is so stable and rooted and productive that you're like a tree planted, not in the desert, but right by a big body of water, a stream of moving water that will feed you regularly so that you always produce fruit and have green leaves and, and are productive and effective in all of the things that you do. This is the path uh, of meditating on the scriptures on a regular basis. This is the path of reading the Bible. So not only that, let me, let me give you another one from the Psalms. This is one where David is just like singing about all of the different things he loves about the Bible. It's Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. 
The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Same idea. Scriptures are beautiful to him, valuable to him, life-changing for him. Let me show you that this isn't just the book of Psalms. Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8, one of the first passages of the Bible that my mama made me memorize when I was just a little boy. And if you don't know what's going on in the book of Joshua, uh, Moses, who you may have heard his name, is, is leading the people of God. And uh, he is in charge of them, leading them on God's behalf. But he's about to be done. He's about to die. And Joshua is his young apprentice who's going to take over leadership of this whole people and going to lead them into the promised land. And as he does so, Moses and God both speak some words into his life. And we get a glimpse of that in Joshua 1, verses 7 and 8. He says, Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Don't turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. And he says, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. And then, so you know that it's not just the Old Testament, let me quote one more to you from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. This is the Apostle Paul, a leader in the early church, writing to Timothy, one of his friends and protégés. And he says in the middle of this letter, 2 Timothy, uh, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see what I mean? It's all over the place, too. These are just a few samplings. If you want to test whether or not the Bible matters today, this is where to start, asking whether or not it does what it promises it's going to do. We evaluate different things in different ways. If I give you a little like plastic bear with a yellow lid and some golden sticky-like substance inside, you're probably going to think that it's honey. But you're not going to know until you what? Like taste it. That's how you measure honey. We measure, we evaluate flowers by whether or not they smell good and are pleasing to the eye. We evaluate friends by whether or not they stand with us when times get tough. So how are we going to measure the Bible? How are we going to evaluate it? It tells us how to all over the place. It promises to produce a certain kind of life, a life filled with power and wisdom and love, and we evaluate it by whether or not it has the power to do what it says it's going to do, turn us into those kind of people. And it doesn't do this, by the way, by just telling us what to do. It's not like an ethics textbook. It's not a self-help manual. It does this by being a, becoming a place where we actually meet God, where we come face to face with him in, 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 this, in, this, in this hard to describe encounter where all of a sudden it's about more than just the words on the page. It's like God is re-speaking them into our lives. Here's who I am, he says. Here's who, I, here's who you are. Here's what to do next. Now, now go be free in this. If you think this sounds crazy, I do too. I think it's kind of weird and yet I think it happens a lot. And the more I've been thinking about this and looking into this, the more stories I've heard about people whose lives were changed by the Bible, by God using the Bible. I heard a, a testimony of a guy this last week named Christopher Ewan. 
Um, he's written a couple of books. He's pretty, pretty, pretty interesting guy. And he was telling a story about how, you know, growing up, he was always best student in the class. And he was on his, I think he was doing a pre-med program and he was ready to move on. And he was top of the class still, but he also had this like double life a lot of, um, of uh, indiscretions, I'll put it that way. And uh, he, was, he was doing and use, using and dealing a lot of drugs in this community and eventually got kicked out of school right before graduation. And so he just moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and he ran the place. In a certain segment of the population, a certain group of people, he was like the, the one who had what you need, the one that you come to. He had multiple encounters of certain kinds every single day, had all the money he could want, and he was living at the top. Now, his mama and daddy were always saying, we pray for you. I want to give you a Bible. His dad gave him his own Bible. He threw it in the trash can. I don't want anything to do with that stuff. It's irrelevant to my life. And then he got busted and he ended up in jail. And he said one of the first couple of days while he was in jail, he's got his new, you know, his new getup on and he goes to his room and he's finally thinking about life and whether or not he's going in a good direction. And he walks in his room, his new little cell, and he lays down on the bottom bunk and he looks up and he sees written uh, right on top of where he's laying, if you are bored, read Jeremiah 29, 11. And so eventually he sees this Bible by the Gideons. It's just sort of there. And he picks it up and reads Jeremiah 20, 29, 11, And it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And this word that God originally spoke through the prophet Jeremiah to the people of Israel heading into exile has been re-spoken now into the life of this young man. And it changed everything. I could tell you story upon story of the Bible doing this kind of thing when people open it up and read it. And I got to confess that I've read more of the Bible in the last couple of years. I've been more diligent in my own reading of the scriptures and study of the scriptures in the last couple of years than probably any other point in my life. And, and I'm feeling its effects for what it's worth. My peace is deeper than it's ever been before. My joy is more consistent. My mind is sharper. My heart is more full of love. I'm more confident in my faith than I've ever been because I'm regularly engaging the word. Now, please don't mishear me. I am so much a work in progress. As anybody who knows me would tell you, I promise you that. I'm more aware of my sin and my stupidities than I've ever been before. And the list is longer than I previously realized. But that's part of the point too. Because I'm hearing in this book, it's convincing me that there's a God who loves me still. You too. Who sent Jesus to die for us. Not because we had it all together, but because we didn't. And now I don't have to try to prove my worth to him or measure up to a standard or win all the time or always be right. I'm free to be in process. You are too. Because we find ourselves walking in grace every step we take. And that truth is changing me. The more times I read it, the more times I spend thinking about it, I've always heard it, I always knew it was true. But the more I actually meditate on it in here, it's doing something to me. I, I'm not special in this. This is normal, or at least it can be. This book will heal you, redeem you, restore you, make you strong, make you wise, make you good. But only if you read it. Only if you read it. I spent my whole life having a pretty high opinion of this book, but, uh, but not always reading it regularly. And I remember hearing this story, and I want to be careful with this. I so don't want you to, to, to be guilted into doing anything this morning. I never think that's a good idea, especially not with this. But I remember hearing this story about this young man who was, um, was going to go off to college, and he wanted to study the Bible at a pretty, pretty liberal university. And his father was very conservative, and they were not real close. They didn't have a great relationship, and the dad was always, oh, you're going to go to that liberal school. They're going to fill your head with all these foolish ideas. You're going to come back and not even believe in the Bible. You're going to deny Genesis. You're going to deny Jonah. You're going to deny it all. It's just going to be a waste of time. The son said, Dad, I'm going to this school. Sorry. He went to the school. Didn't come back for like a year and a half. Didn't have a great relationship with his pops, so they didn't often you know, want to hang out. 
Year and a half later, though, Christmas break comes home, walks in the door. First thing dad says is not, hey, buddy, how you doing? It's, so tell me, what happened? Did you go to that liberal school and they fill your head with ideas and now you don't believe in the Bible? You don't believe in Genesis? You don't believe in Jonah? And the son said, actually, dad, yeah, I don't think Jonah actually happened. I think it's a great parable. I think it's an important truth. I think we should read it and learn from it. But I don't think a dude actually got swallowed up by a big old fish. Dad says, see, I told you, this is exactly what's going to happen. Fill your head with stupid ideas. Now you can't even think for yourself. And the son says, I'll tell you what, dad. How about you go get your Bible off the shelf? You and I read the book of Jonah together. I know you loved it, one of your favorites. You and I read it together, and then you can tell me why you think it's something that really happened, and I'll tell you why I think it's a parable that's designed to teach a different sort of lesson. And the dad's like, all right, I'm down. So he goes and he gets his Bible, opens it up, can't find Jonah. He's a little embarrassed by this, but he's not shaking. He knows it's in there. And so he looks at the table of contents, finds his page number, turns to where it's supposed to be, realizes it's gone. Looks closely, says, somebody cut Jonah out of my Bible. Who would do that? I love this book. And the son says, actually, dad, it was, it was me a year and a half ago. So let me ask you a question, pops. What's the difference between me denying the Bible and you ignoring it? I've spent much of my life believing right things about this book. And I'd imagine most of you probably do too. The question is not that we believe the right things about this book. The question is how often are we engaging it? And as much as I don't, I don't want you to be guilted into it, I don't think that like not reading the Bible is bad. If I could be honest, I just kind of think it's dumb. And I'm speaking to myself too. And if you try this out, if you examine the, if you like, let's say you stay away from it because you're not sure if it's relevant. If you just try it out and look at this book and say, how are you going to show your relevance to me? How are you going to prove it to me? The Bible's answer will consistently be clear. Read me. Just read me and see. Taste and see. Stop treating me like green eggs and ham. You know what I mean? Just take a bite. You might find out that you actually like what you're ingesting. Just jump in, stick around for a while, and let's find out. And let's remember the point of what we're talking about here. We're acknowledging that there's a lot of people in our world, a lot of friends of ours, people we love and care about, maybe some of us who doubt the Bible's relevance. And we're seeing that while arguments and defenses have a place, the best proof is living proof. The best defense is that we become walking evidence that the Bible can change people, can do something to them. When I think about defending the Bible and, and arguing about it being a worthy book, I think about this, um, this statement from an old, old Baptist British preacher from a long time ago. Charles Spurgeon was his name. A big old beard, looks awesome, preached even awesomer. He said uh, in a sermon about this, he, let me give you the quote. He said this, suppose some people were taking it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of beasts, There he is in the cage, and here come all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe that that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. That's how I feel about the Bible. So let's get kind of practical if we can. How can you let the lion out of his cage? How can you and I become people whose lives naturally testify to the power of this book to change us? How can we be satisfied in the gospel by ingesting this book? And really what I want to say is read it. But I want to go beyond that a little bit to give you three simple guidelines. First of all, read it reverently. Reverently. Now I'm not saying that you have to believe every word of it is 100% true in order for it to do anything in your life. No, if that's not where you are, God's not saying, all right, clean it up and then I'll talk to you. No, it's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that if you read it just to prove it wrong, it's going to take a little longer. And if you read it just to prove yourself right, it's probably not going to work very well. God doesn't tend to operate with that sort of hubris. If if you read it just to kind of confirm, whether you like, like you're confirming religious things or irreligious things, if you're reading it just to prove yourself right, you probably have a block there 
that's going to keep it from doing its entire work in you. Psalm 25, 9 says, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. And again, I'm not saying you have to be like me and believe everything in it, but if you're approaching this, all I'm asking is you just approach this thing and say, all right, God, I don't even know what this means, but like I'm trying here, so, so meet me. If that's not there, I don't think it's going to work. Not because God is being stingy or because God's come some kind of a punk. I think he's a good father. And sometimes you withhold certain things from your children if they're not ready to receive them. So it's a simple rule. Just read it like you were if you were actually reading a letter from God. Just pretend that it's a letter from God. Try to read it like that and we'll be moving in the right direction. Because in fact, I believe it is. Read it reverently. Secondly, read it regularly. Read it regularly. Did you notice the, the statement that came up in both um, Joshua 1 and Psalm 1? I don't know if you caught it, but there's this phrase in both of them. They both say to meditate on it day and night. And did you notice that when Paul talked to Timothy about uh, the power of the scriptures in his life, he reminded Timothy that you've been learning these things for years and years and years? He says, you have heard the scriptures from infancy. Now, we can love this or we can hate it, but the fact is the Bible takes full effect over long periods of time in which it is read and listened to and heard and engaged regularly. Can't just do it once and expect it to do its work. This is why I think a lot of people say, I've read the Bible, it didn't work for me. Okay, did you just read it like a couple times? Because at the end of the day, it's not that kind of thing. You can't get healthy just by eating one or two meals the right way. You got to do it regularly. And part of me wants to say to this, like, obviously... I have no idea why any of us would expect the Bible to do its work in us if we don't engage it on a regular basis. Our soul's need for scripture is less like, you know, gasoline in a car and more like water in your body. You can't just fill up every couple weeks and then keep going. Like you're going to die if you try to do that. And in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus himself said, quoting Deuteronomy, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. I'm not saying you got to read every single word, like, you know, weekly or yearly even. I'm just saying, like, big picture, got to back up and take it all in. I mean, think about it like this when it comes to regular reading of the Bible. Think, think about how often you take a shower. Like, don't holler it out to me. I don't really want to know personally, you know. You can keep that information to yourself. But however long you, however often you, like, bathe yourself, if you bathed as often as you sit down to actually read the Bible, what would you smell like? Like, would you stink? I mean, imagine if, you, imagine if you're a person that bathes like once a month. I hope that, we'll just leave it alone. Imagine if you're a person that bathes like once a month and then you go to work and you say to a coworker, dude, you gotta try this new brand of soap I have. I'm telling you, you clean yourself with this stuff. It works. You should for real buy some. He's gonna be like, bro, you stink, man. Like, I'm not gonna assume that your soap is something that I want. Like, if you tell me to buy a brand of soap, I'm probably gonna buy a different brand of soap. And even if your brand of soap works, it doesn't matter because he's assuming it's irrelevant to his attempts to stay fresh and clean. And if we don't read the Bible regularly, it can't do its work in us. And if it doesn't do its work in us, then the watching world will continue to assume its relevance. So read the Bible as often as you can. Read it every day. Read it on your app when you're in the grocery line or whatever. Listen to it in your car. If you work in your own office or if, you can, if you're good at multitasking, I'm not. But if you're good at multitasking, just put it in your ears. Listen to it while you go about your other business. Read some in the morning, even if it's just a little bit. Come back to it at noon. Think about it again one time before you go to bed. Regular reading. Even a little bit is good. Don't try to climb the mountain in a day. But even if you just took one verse of scripture every day and actually read it closely, one verse a day, that's 365 verses a year. That's more than most of us do on a regular basis. 
And it is important to read it, not just sort of glancing across, but actually digging in. So it's not just about frequency, it's about focus. That takes us to our third point. Read it reflectively. Reflectively. The biblical word is meditation. But don't be weirded out by that word. It's not like, you know, sitting and cross-legged home. It's not the picture in the Bible. In the Bible, meditation is not emptying your mind. It's filling your mind and keeping something there. That's the basic idea. Get something in your mind and keep it there. Think through it slowly, repeatedly, over time. A lot of words for meditation in the Old Testament. A couple of favorites, a couple of main ones. First one's saya or siya. It means to get something in your mind and keep it there, to ponder it, to think about it for a while, to not let it out, hold on to it for a bit. And then the other word for meditation is the word haga. That's the one in the texts we read. Literally, it means to murmur. Just keep, keep it right there on your lips. You ever known one of those people who always is almost singing a song? It's like kind of right there. It's kind of annoying, really, because you're like, sing it louder. I want to know what you're singing. But you can tell there's always like a song right there. The Bible's saying, let, let, me be, let me be that song that you're almost always singing. Keep it right there in the forefront of your mind. And so the idea is that you read it slowly, turning it over in your mind and, and just getting all of that, soaking all of that life and power from it. And let's be honest, this is not how most of us read the Bible, staying in it and savoring it, seeing all its contours and corners. Now, most of us, most of us are like, some, we read the Bible like somebody's sprinting through the Sistine Chapel. No wonder we miss its beauty. We read the Bible like somebody taking a great movie that everybody's talked about as being so awesome. You take this great movie and you watch 10 minutes of it on fast forward. And you're like, oh, I think it's kind of overrated. Well, I'm sure you think so. Like you haven't actually, you haven't actually engaged it. Let me give you one more metaphor. The word of God is like fire. But you got to linger at the fire if you want to get warm. Picture yourself. January, it's cold, freezing cold, snow everywhere. Wind won't stop. You're outside. You're cold. You're freezing. Got your coat on. Doesn't matter. Your insides are cold. Your outsides are cold. Your fingers are about to fall off. You're not sure if you have toes anymore. You're just angry. You're so cold. You know what I'm talking about? You've been there? And you see this house. And you walk into this house and you see this fire. And you walk up to this fire and you stand there for like five seconds and then you turn around and walk away. Are you warm? No. Like it do- doesn't work that way. And yet that's how I think most of us treat scripture. I mean, let, let me hang out here for a second. I mean, it is a fire and I am kind of cold after all. Oh, got other things to do. Let me bounce and just hope it works. It's not going to work. Somebody said one time that failure to linger, think about that phrase, failure to linger, he says, is the reason why people fail to remember what they read or find their hearts warmed by the fire of God's word. One last question and we'll be done. If I, if I offered you if I offered you $500 for every chapter of the Bible that you read this week, would you read more than last week or the week before? Now, I'll admit that, that what the Bible promises is not as tangible and it's harder to see than, than cash in your hand, but its value is infinitely richer. Let's read it. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.